welcome to my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, podcasting from the heart of Holland in Amersfoort, the Netherlands, one of the most beautiful towns in the world, at least in my opinion, <laughs> on a windy, cold, but also sunny Monday in January. And this episode is made possible by, my, by the community of my patrons, the people that help me to do this work uh, by their monthly support. And if you want to join them, check it out on patreon.com slash fatherroderick. And if you become a patron, if you have a little bit of spare change that you can miss, then you'll get access to a special exclusive feed of podcasts that I record every week for my supporters on Patreon. So thank you so much. If you are a patron, we are getting new patrons uh, all the time. So if you're new, welcome to the community and thank you so much for your support. And if you're kind of thinking about it, well, think about it. <laughs> you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. It is very cold, wintry weather in the Netherlands. I just uh, came back from a short shooting session outside. Um, uh, I'm still recording my presentations for my Dutch TV show um, out in the cold. And this time we were filming. We, I needed to have a like a church in the background because the show, the episode, is going to be about volunteers in uh, in churches or around the the churches that we have, and. Um, we were standing on this main square in the center of Amersfoort, which was actually surprisingly empty during the summertime. That's where everybody sits outside and has a beer or another drink. Um, there are lots of restaurants there. But this morning, for this afternoon, it was actually super calm. And But the, the, the downside of this time of the year is that the sun is setting very, very rapidly. So we were there around 3.30, I think. And the sun was already disappearing behind the buildings of the town. Uh, we've this, this nice square and it's got all these old uh, houses, uh, centuries old houses, but the sun was disappearing behind them. So we were kind of in a hurry. And so we start recording. And when I say we, I was there with Martin, who was uh, holding um, this reflection screen because on a sunny day like this, um, the downside of a sunny day is you get these very harsh shadows. And in order to mitigate those shadows, we use a reflection screen that reflects the sun. So, and it fills in the shadows on the other side of my face. So we were ready to record. And all of a sudden I hear screaming, but really like crazy screaming. And then we see on the other side of the square, these two kids on bikes, little kids, I think they must have been five or something like that. And they were chasing after pigeons, screaming, yelling, at, you know, with all the energy in the air that they had uh, to, these, to these animals. And I was like, okay, perhaps they will stop after a minute, but they didn't. It only got worse. And so I start yelling at these kids, so can you please stop doing that? Because we're trying to record something here. No reaction. And the boy, uh, there was a boy and a girl, and the boy just keeps screaming even louder, almost as if he did it on purpose. <laughs> so I, I repeat it again, like, please, can you stop yelling? <laughs> And so in the end, Martin walks towards these kids and grumbles something in the distance. And then these kids finally go away. <laughs> At least they stop. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. It's, uh, there's always something when I'm recording outside. It's either that or it is um, airplanes. 
that, of course, make a lot of noise. We're kind of the city is not far from Schiphol Airport. So uh, sometimes, not not all the time, but sometimes you'll get the, the because of the wind or whatever, um, you've got a lot of airplanes flying over this town. Um, or it could be other people. Sometimes we have spectators, people that see me filming something and then they think they uh, make me very happy by by coming near near us and, and, and commenting on the work that we do. And there's nothing worse than that because I have to remember, I have to learn by heart my presentation texts. And it's already pretty hard to focus on that and then pretend that I'm actually kind of making it up on the spot and staying natural and looking at the sharpness of the image and the color and the shadows and the light. <laughs> People are like, whoa, whoa. We didn't know you you did this on yourself. Dude, you have a cameraman. And, uh, um, yeah, you know what? I have an idea. Why don't you write down the text on a big piece of paper and then the other guy can hold it in front of the or next to the camera and then you don't have to memorize it. And I'm like, please, I'm trying to record something here. I'm not interested in your comments. And that, you also have to stay calm and stay friendly because, you know, before you know it, someone films you one and puts it up on YouTube like angry priest, you know, is totally different from the persona on his show. <laughs> really, the, the amount of patience that you need to have to do in this line of work, it's unbelievable. But anyway, we got it done. And uh, and even though it's cold, it's nothing compared to the cold currently in the United States. Uh, I see these reports about snowstorms and, and, and wind chill that is like, like the other day, they were talking about 30 degrees below zero, wind chill. And then I realized, wait a minute, they're not talking about Celsius, they're talking about Fahrenheit. That's even worse. <laughs> oh, I hope if you are in the U.S. and you're currently in one of those areas where it's so cold, stay safe. I hope you, you'll you be fine. And it's always a bit jarring to get this, on one hand, this news from this extreme winter weather in the United States. And then you get all this... Uh, footage and the news from Panama in South America, where currently uh, millions or well, at least hundreds of hundreds of thousands of young people are gathering in anticipation of World Youth Day. Uh, Pope Francis is going to join them uh, this Wednesday. He's going to fly to Panama and we'll stay a couple of days there and then they will have the final celebration um, in Panama City with, uh, they expect about a, a million uh, people, a million participants, always kind of hard to estimate and perhaps it will be less perhaps it will be more um, but it's um, but but the weather over there is really really great it's summertime and there's a lot of sun and I see these students and they're constantly enjoying the nice weather and and staying up late for parties and everything it's like huh I could have been there you know I actually uh, it, they offered me to go there and to film the event and I said no and actually I I know why I didn't want to do it because uh, I knew that we were going to be so busy around this time of the year. This this year in 2019, I am to produce, uh, to film and to produce uh, 25 episodes of my TV show. That's I've never done so much TV work in one year, and that's not the only thing. We're also building up uh, th- this entirely new channel here in the Netherlands and in part of, uh, we're also gearing it to, to the um, uh, Dutch-speaking people in Belgium. 
But for that, we're also going to produce a number of shows on a weekly basis. So th this, this upcoming week, we're launching, uh, we're formally launching the initiative. We will reveal the name. Um, and we, just the other week, we hired two new people that are going to be on the team for that particular channel. Um, and that's Judith. Uh, she's um, a former colleague of mine uh, at, uh, on, with the TV shows that I made. As a journalist, uh, very, very well-versed in the world of, uh, of uh, the Catholic Church, uh, the Pope, the Vatican, uh, but also f very much in tune with the, you know, the, our, our current-day culture. And, um, and, and I'm very, very happy that we could um, uh, hire her for one day per week to help us with you know, covering the news. And, and we're going to focus on the Vatican news and uh, the news around Pope Francis. Or his successors, you never know, you know, what, what, what happens this year. I hope nothing, nothing happens, but y y you always have to be prepared. Um, and then we have also Mario Leine, and she is going to be one of the new faces of uh, this channel that we're go going to launch. Um, and I know her from Church in Need. Uh, she's, uh, she works there a couple of days a week. Um, and I've interviewed her once, I think two years ago for, for my TV show. And sometimes you just meet these people that have a sort of natural charism uh, for television. And so two years later, we're able to hire her for one day per week to do a presentation work and to help us also with building up the community. This is one of the things that she does really well is to connect people and to organize events. And what we're going to do, and I'm super excited about that aspect of this new channel, is we're, we are going to visit the parishes in the Netherlands and perhaps later on also in Belgium um, to record at least one live show every week on location. And that will enable us to both reach the people that we are have there we have we don't have any other means we don't have a budget for pr or advertising we don't have access to you know regular tv and radio so the way we want to build up this community is by going to these local parishes and and inviting people to tell us the stories of what's happening there um so we're going to create a little format there, for, uh, live stream that on Facebook, a bit similar to what we do with this show. But here I'm doing it in the studio with a green screen and I'm solo, you know, I'm just talking myself. Um, but this new show will be, um, I'll be, I'll be co-hosting it with, uh, with Marjolaine and then we'll have guests in those shows. So it's a totally different thing. We've never done this before. It's scary because it's a lot more complicated than streaming from a green screen studio where the, the webcam is always in the same location and I know the lights and then the software works and you, you have your routine and I don't have that yet for, for this live show. So that's a totally new thing. Uh, we're also going to produce so this this news uh, item every week, and um, the let's say the 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 biggest project that we're going to do is to film these um, mini documentaries every week. Uh, but we're slowing slowly building that up because there's also a lot of other work to do um, for TV, of course. But I'm I'm very confident that we can do this, especially because I always said. If we are going to expand, if we're, we are going to grow, we need to make sure that um, we involve new people so that we never pile up the work on my plate <laughs> or on the plate of the people that currently work at Tridio. Uh, but if you want to grow, you also need to grow 
the, your resources, you, the the people and the 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 equipment, the your 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 possibilities have to expand as well. And so, we are finally able to do this, and and we're growing. Uh, the platform, we're growing the number of initiatives, and I couldn't be more excited because this is what I've always dreamt of, and now I'm finally doing it. So uh, that's also going to benefit my international audience because since we're we're growing, we're also hopefully growing the financial support. Uh, the more people that we help with our content, the more people are likely to help us with their contribution. And so that is going to be hopefully also a, a solid foundation for the, the international work that we do, that I'll be able to hire even more people to help me to do the video productions. And uh, I have some really cool ideas uh, there uh, for you as part of the international audience as well. So good things are coming uh, this year. That was the main reason that I didn't want to go to Panama, because that is two weeks in a, in, a, in a country on the other side of the planet, you'll have to jet lag. And also I know from previous uh, World Youth Days that it is very, very taxing because um, I'd be filming on a daily basis, doing all the editing myself. You have the, just the distances that you have to walk and um, it's, ex it's pretty exhausting. And then you come back home, then you have to recover for a week. That is time that I just don't have or that I would rather invest in making sure that Tridio is, is, is able to make the next step. And I think it's a wise decision. Even though when I see the images from Panama, I was like, mm, I wish I was there. But oh, well, sometimes you have to say no to one thing, even though it may be a very good thing in itself to enable other things to, to happen and Sometimes you have to choose between two things that are good. Well, that's better than having to choose between two things that are that are pretty bad. Um, final update here uh, in, about Studio 2. I'm sitting in Studio 1. That's our green screen studio. We have Studio 2 where we're building a set for another exciting project that is linked to my TV show. Um, we just this morning received the equipment for uh, for that studio, and it's pretty cool stuff. We've got a, a Sony camera. Um, a what was it? I always forget the type, the number, <laughs> the as in uh, a five two FS five. Uh, let me look that up real quick. It's a professional camera that you can also use for uh, that is used a lot for Netflix productions, for instance. I think it's the FS five two. Let me quickly look that up. Sony. Yeah, the FS five two. So that is a a documentary camera. It's got a really great lens. It's kind of more like a, a f like a photo lens, but it has like a fixed aperture over the entire zoom length of the lens itself, which is very expensive, <laughs> but also extremely cool. So what I mean by that is normally when you zoom in with a cheaper lens, um, it also reduces the amount of light that it takes in. So when you zoom in and you're not, on auto, on automatic, then you constantly have to widen your aperture. And it, it's it's a hassle. But these nicer, these, these more expensive cameras, they have lenses that just have the same aperture no matter how close you zoom in or how wide you open the, the, the zoom lens. So that's a very, very cool camera um, for, for that studio. We also have, for the first time ever, 
a um, teleprompter system so that when I'm presenting, and the teleprompter is basically, it's what they use everywhere in, in, in news television. Um, it enables you to film through a mirror, and that mirror is on a, on a slope, it's slanted, and it, it can uh, reflect texts on an iPad or a whatever, you know, a tablet. Um, so you can read the texts uh, that are scrolling, that is scrolling, and but you can film through the through the mirror, so it will look as if you're basically talking straight to the audience. But the advantage of that is I don't have to remember all, all these texts. The downside is you have to write the texts. But it's it's something that I'm really eager to experiment with because it enables me to do something more than just off the cuff talking. So that is uh, another very cool, and, and you know, if, if, if it works, if we like it, we can also get a second set for this studio for the work that we do here and in front of the green screen. So another step towards a, a professional production, um, and I can't wait to show you what, what they build here next door. We can't because it's not revealed yet, and we're teasing it currently on Instagram. Um, but it is, I'm, I'm super excited because this is something that, Again, I've always dreamt of doing, but we never had the time or the means or, or just the experience to make it happen. So good things are going to happen here in 2019. And with that, I think it is time for our first segment of the show, if you don't count our new segment. And that is, of course, uh, our little talk about movies and TV shows. I didn't have much time to go to the movies, but I want to talk about uh, a very cool fan project um, that is uh, Star Wars based and then I also want to talk briefly about uh, perhaps the most exciting teaser trailer of the year that I've ever seen and it has to do with the background here uh, in the Studio One I <laughs> do not like movies they're predictable like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father not liking movies is like not liking puppies they're fine I just get bored and never make it to the end you know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. Now I'm going to give it to you. So this week, I'm sitting in front of a still of a teaser trailer that shows you a barn and, uh, and an old, very old car that is covered uh, with a, is it called a tarp? <laughs> I don't know. It's just a piece of plastic. But the wind has blown up like the 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 uh, the back of the of the cover, and then you see the Ghostbusters logo. I'm pretty sure if you're a geek that you've already checked out that trailer. It came as a total surprise last week. It was the announcement that there will be a genuine sequel to the existing two Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters movie movies, and that that sequel is planned for 2020, and it will be directed by the son of the director of the original Ghostbusters movie. Um, Jason Reitman is the son of uh, uh, Ivan Reitman, who directed uh, the first Ghost, the original Ghostbusters movie. Um, and he has announced that he wants to film a real sequel. Uh, so this is different from the reboot that we uh, had to suffer, unfortunately, uh, what is it, two years ago already? The all-female uh, uh, Ghostbusters with a female team of Ghostbusters. A movie that I really disliked, as you know, if you've listened to my review back then. Um, and 
not because it was a, f- a team of female Ghostbusters. It's just that the type of humor, the 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 story, it just didn't work for me. And I don't know why. It could also be a cultural thing because it had a lot of the uh, the the type of humor of let's say a Saturday Night Live. Um, and and I think that several of the actors were also part of the Saturday Night Live cast. And that is just a type of humor that, at, in my eyes, doesn't really work in Europe. It's a it's something that, I don't know. It's just not funny to me, at least. I I can totally re- I totally respect it if you're a huge fan of that type of humor, but it it just fell flat here. And uh, although I even know quite a few Dutch people uh, that loved the movie. But I don't know. It's just like food. Sometimes someone loves uh, a certain type of food where uh, that I loathe and, and vice versa. Um, so it's a personal thing. But the movie wasn't the success that they hoped it would be. Is it Sony, I think, uh, that uh, uh, distributes this movie? Um, and there was also a lot of controversy around, you know, the, just the, the entire, the idea of a reboot because it's, you're you're kind of playing with, nostalgia and that's always very risky it if it could have been a major success that of course what, what was what they were hoping um and that would would bring in parents and their children so you get like what happens with star wars for instance that the older generation takes their kids and sometimes even their grandchildren to to pass on the torch in a certain way like they their love of star wars and their nostalgia uh, helps them promote this franchise to their children and grandchildren and they hope that with Ghostbusters they would re- kind of reboot the, f- the whole franchise and that we would get a ton of new movies because it's a pretty valuable franchise in this era of reboots but unfortunately the movie was not the success that they hoped and it was also controversial enough for uh, the, the, I think it's Sony should I look that up now just whatever distribution company uh, decided to try it again and I think it's a smart move. Um, this time, uh, as I m- mentioned, it will be a real sequel and not a reboot. So the events that happened in the 80s, in the original two movies, are still canon in a certain way. They're, they're, they are That happened. But this third movie is going to take place today in, in our modern world, just as the female reboot, actually. But it will ignore the storyline and the existence of the female Ghostbusters entirely. Um, and then, and then the week after that, we get the, or I think it was even a day after that, we get this this teaser trailer that looks really cool. It's got the original music. It's got the, for, for I don't know how they did it, but it totally matches the vibe that you expect a Ghostbusters movie to have. And that was one of the things, one of the reasons that I didn't like the the reboot. It was it just it was not funny enough. Uh, it didn't have that same vibe as the original movies. So, um, also, uh, uh, Ivan Reitman, so the, uh, Jason's father, will still be producing the movie. So there's going to be this supervision of kind of like literally passing on 
the franchise to a new generation. Now, you can also imagine that, that this upsets the people that have invested so much in the female reboot. And one of the act actresses actually uh, ranted on Twitter, I think, that she uh, feels this is a very bleep move and that uh, they're basically getting another slap in the in the face and uh, uh, that, that now it's an all-male sequel and we're kind of reverting and we were trying to get away from that. Well, I can understand that criticism, but on the other hand, um, the, 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 the female reboot just didn't work, and it was not because it was a female reboot. It was just not the right movie, I think. It wasn't, didn't have the quality that it needed to have. And so I personally am, am super excited, and I hope it will be a good reboot. One thing that um, gives me a little bit confidence is that a number of the uh, existing actors of the f original two movies have already indicated that they are interested and they want to be on board. So perhaps even Sigourney Weaver, she may be back. Who knows? How cool would that be? Um, but whatever, I think they have, must have redundancy plans if the old, the ancient, the old cast. It's pretty ancient right now. It's filmed in the eighties when I was young. Um, it's probably uh, not essential. Uh, but it would be cool to have some of those characters kind of returning to show that this is a true sequel. So we'll wait and see. Um, in other news, uh, speaking of Star Wars, uh, I'm not sure if you followed this whole controversy around a fan project that was called Vader Shards of the Past. This is a fan uh, film that was uh, posted on uh, YouTube uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, created by fans, and it stars Vader. And it is a pretty cool first episode of what is clearly supposed to become a, a fan series. Um, and it looks really very, very well done. It uses cosplayers, I, I guess, um, but lots of great costumes. The story that it tells, I mean, you can tell that it, of course, is not made with the same kind of budget as a regular Star Wars production, but it still is done very creatively with limited means, limited sets, um, but it still works as a story. There's a lot of the classic Star Wars, you know, the fighting and Vader being able to, uh, to uh, freeze um, blaster fire that is almost similar to the scene in the first Matrix movie where, where Neo is is fr freezing all these um, these bullets in space like it and 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 so they they did that it's, it's kind of like uh, what we saw Kylo Ren doing in the Force Awakens but then in overdrive instead of one laser blast he's holding pushing back like a thousand laser blasts it looks really really cool um, and later on also stars uh, the Emperor and there are lots of cool little surprises in there. But it uh, it got into major trouble when um, the uh, company that is uh, managing the music rights to the Star Wars music and, and Disney music in general uh, made a claim on the movie. So the movie was posted as a fan, a work of, of, of fan fiction in a certain way. I think the the uh, creators actually had had been in contact with Lucasfilm to check if they could do this. And Lucasfilm had told them, well, as long as you don't make money uh, off of this and it's clear that it's a fan production, then we'll greenlight it. Well, it turns out, this is how copyright unfortunately works nowadays, that Disney has licensed the... 
uh, sales of their of their music or you know to to, to a company that handles the the digital rights management. That of course is a very uh, complicated job. Um, so Disney outsourced it, and that particular company said the music that was used in uh, in the fan film was too similar to the music of John Williams, especially uh, a part of that soundtrack that was created specifically, was composed by an original composer for this fan movie. So they didn't copy the music from Star Wars, but they had a composer do something like a riff on the themes of Star Wars. Um, But according to that company, the music was way too similar so what they did was, and you can do that if you're a rights digital rights owner, they put a claim on the fel- film music, uh, or on actually on the entire product, and they inserted advertisements on the video. And the money didn't go to the makers of that fan movie, but the money went to that company and then flowed back to Disney, of course. That was a stupid PR move because, of course, you can imagine what happens. Even though from a legal perspective, I I totally understand this. And this is the kind of stuff that, you know, you take a risk when you do these fan films. And because you don't own the IP, you don't own the rights to the music. And these companies, these big movie companies have to act legally um, because if they don't, they they create precedent, and then other people could actually use the precedent if if you let it go. It's like it's, it's just fans, and um, and but they could use that as a legal argument to do much worse than fans would do, and they could make money off of uh, the original IP of uh, of Lucasfilm and, and Disney. So I understand that 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 company was. Uh, strong arming this, uh, this, these, these fans and, and we're, we're claiming the rights. But of course, in the perception, like in the, 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 the public perception of the fans, this was another proof that Disney is screwing the fans, basically. It's just claiming this and it was a, a, lo- a work of love for Star Wars and and now this big, you know, the big mouse, they already have billions and why do they steal the money from these fans? And so from a public relations point of view, this was a very stupid thing to do. But unfortunately, um, I think they, when this started to... Uh, make waves in 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 international media, and of course it did because the 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 author of the of the fan film went on his YouTube channel and said, "Look what's happening! They're stealing our money. They're making money off of our backs, and we've spent so much time and resources, and and we didn't make any money with this. And now see what happens." And then Lucasfilm intervened, and they told that company. Uh, that had put the claim on the video to retract the claim. And now the movie is still available on YouTube. So it didn't, didn't because the, it, it seemed almost, I think the, the author uh, started discussion with the uh, music rights holder. Um, and they basically told the fans, well, it's either this, we make money off the advertisements on this video, or we will ask uh, Google to completely suspend your account and then everything is gone. This video has had more than 8 million views. So 
imagine that just the, the the disaster for the people that have poured so much love into making this. So Luxfilm intervened. They retracted. They had the other company retract the claim, and now it's available. Um, and nobody profits of it. Also, not Disney and Lucasfilm. So uh, there are no advertisements, but there are also there's also no revenue. So I think that this is probably the best solution. And I am glad that at least this company, Lucasfilm, was acting fast. And they, believe me, they don't do this because they love the fans. It's just because every PR person would immediately see if we don't act quickly and 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 fix this, it is going to be so much negative publicity around Star Wars and around the brand of Star Wars that it can jeopardize the success even of Episode Nine. Imagine there were already people uh, um, calling for a boycott of Episode Nine because of this debacle. And the last thing that Disney wants and Lucasfilm wants is more negative publicity surrounding the Star Wars brand. They've already had a lot of trouble um, kind of <laughs> dealing with all the negativity around uh, uh, The Last Jedi, even though, you know, from a total, from a more objective perspective, there was really not much going on. They still made it a lot of money on on The Last Jedi, and uh, it's, it's, it's the vocal people that you hear, the vocal fans. Um, but nevertheless... Uh, that's how media work. If if this would have become a scandal, then for even in the in the in the months leading up to the premiere of episode nine, every journalist would call back, harken back to this event, saying, "Well, you know, there's been a lot of negativity surrounding Star Wars. You had all the backlash over the over the Last Jedi, and uh, and then it, earlier this year we had this major crisis in fan relations because Lucasfilm stole the money from these few loving fans, and and that was the final nail in the coffin, etc. I mean, that's how the press writes. So it was a ve- very interesting. I could, I could, I immediately could predict what would happen. That Lucasfilm would actually bite the bullet and just intervene, and then nobody makes money off of this. But it it shows you also how careful you have to be nowadays as a production company or as a distribution company with your fans. If you if if the fa- it's not a rational thing, it's not a legal argument here. This is how can we make sure that these fans will be on our side when we need to sell them something. <laughs> and I think that that uh, these bigger companies are learning rapidly um, and, and are learning fast. And I wouldn't be surprised if if they are uh, they have uh, a lot of brainstorming sessions about the promotion of of episode nine. It's not by accident that we haven't seen a trailer for episode nine yet. I think they have thought this through very, very, deeply with everyone involved to make sure that there won't be the same backlash over or or even before the movie premieres that would be even worse this negative vibe around episode 9 because Disney wants this to be a major success and I think for the world of Star Wars and for the world of Star Wars fans this needs to be a success I want this to be a success so that we get more Star Wars in the near future Catholics rock! We will be revisiting Star Wars later on in the show in our games segment, but first we need to pay a visit to this peculiar bunch. Am 
Chocolates can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Now this is the place where I talk a little bit about uh, my other passion. And that is everything that has to do with faith. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Now, one of the reasons that I love franchises like Star Wars, uh, but also the Harry Potter franchise and the Marvel franchise, is that I can rewatch those stories time and again. And every time, I will discover new layers of meaning. And these stories are so, in a certain way, mythological that they can speak differently to you in different times of your life. When I first saw Star Wars... I loved it as a child, and I loved the lightsabers and the X-Wing fighters, and, and there was this big bad guy, Star, Darth Vader. And, and when I grew older, I started to notice all the other themes in there, and then I, you start to connect that with moments in your own life and your own experiences. And that's why these stories are so timeless in a certain way, because they tell a story that you can relate to um, at any moment in your life. And that is something that good stories have in common with biblical stories. Um, I, as a priest, have to talk about Bible stories on a weekly basis. When I preach, when I uh, uh, prepare a homily, I have, I'm, I'm reading the, the texts that are selected for that particular weekend, and I have to relate those texts to our society, to what's happening in my life and the life of my parishioners. Um, and that that forces me to reread those texts on a on a very regular basis and um i love doing that and i love uh, the challenge of trying to find new perspectives in these texts i have a number of colleagues that uh, will actually just reread the homily that they did about this particular or that particular text uh, a few years ago and they will just you know, uh, print reprint the homily uh, that that's still lingering on their computer, and um, because of, well, it's the same gospel, so I can have the same homily. I personally could not do that. First of all, because I don't write down my homilies, never ever, so I don't have an archive of my homilies. But secondly, because that is, I think, uh, uh, you risk suffocating the the text itself. The the Bible is a it's kind of a living text. A bre- we, as Catholics, we consider uh, uh, Scripture to to be the Word of God. It doesn't mean that God sat down at his, you know, PC and 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 wrote this entire thing, but it is an inspired text. It's written by people, by 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 humans, but the inspiration for these stories and for these uh, um, this, this narrative um, is is divine, and so. This text, in a certain way, has an uh, uh, like an innate uh, power. Uh, it has um, how would you say that? I know the Dutch word is zeggingskracht, but I don't know the English equivalent of that. But th- this text, because it's an inspired text, <clears throat> has deeper layers. Sometimes even going deeper than the author intended or or was aware of. Um, and there is also this mysterious um, interconnection of all these stories. And sometimes you see reflections of, of, of ancient stories that happened centuries before the time of Jesus. And then 
sometimes you see them reflected in in events that happen in in the gospel stories. Um, and I'm, I'm I've always been fascinated by that strange, mysterious power of of the biblical stories. The way that I try to deal with it is, of course, I've, I studied theology and I studied studied uh, um, scripture, so I also know a lot about how these stories came about, and um, that there you learn scripture analysis, where you 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 start to analyze the text from from on different layers as well. There's the like the literal analysis, you know, what are the words that are used, and are there certain um, ways in which this particular part of the Bible is written, and uh, do we know the rules uh, that were used back then in for the composition of these texts? Sometimes you have poems like the like the Psalms. That was a certain literary genre. What what can we learn about that genre to better understand what these texts want to say? But then you also have these kind of more um, meta connections of of texts. Uh, sometimes within one gospel, you will have all of a sudden you see a reflection of something that will happen much later. And that happened to me this Sunday with a story that I'm super familiar with. And, and undoubtedly, almost every one of you will also be familiar with it. It's the famous story about the miracle at Cana, where Jesus is, is invited with his mother and also his followers uh, on a wedding party in Cana, which is not far from Nazareth. It's about, I, I think you could walk that in a day. Um, and, of course, Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, lived in Nazareth, and Jesus too. So it makes sense that, that uh, since he was in the area, um, and perhaps it was friends or friends of Mary, we don't know the details, but they were invited to come over and celebrate that wedding. And it was not just a few hours, of course. This just could probably last a couple of days. And the story goes uh, that uh, at one point during the we wedding festivities, they're out of wine. There are more guests or whatever. They didn't buy enough wine. Who knows? And Mary goes to Jesus telling him they have no wine. And then Jesus seems to be a bit harsh and says, what well, woman, is that your is that your, your affair? Is, should you be concerned with that? My hour hasn't come yet. And then Mary goes back to the servants and tells them, well, just do what he says. And then Jesus orders them to take six um, uh, vessels that were used for ritual washing, fill them with water, and then when the, when they serve the water to the to the guests, it has turned into wine. And then there is this, um, uh, let's say, the leader of the of the servants or the the table master who also tastes from the wine, and has he has no idea where it comes from because they were out of wine, and so. He talks to Jesus when he hears, hears that it was Jesus who performed a miracle. And he says, or at least who made, we don't, we don't, we don't even know if he knew that it was a miracle that, that gave them that wine. And he, he tells Jesus, well, I don't get it. Or no, wait a minute. He doesn't go to Jesus. He, doesn't, he goes to the, to the, I think, to the, the couple. Uh, and he tells the groom, I don't get it. You know, normally we would first serve the good wine and then when everybody's drunk, we would serve the lesser wine because nobody would taste it anyway. But you kept the best wine until the last moment. Why? Um, and of course, the servants know very well that this was actually a miracle and that they didn't, this wasn't a, a, on purpose. Um, so, and then John, who is the only... Uh, uh, 
what is it, gospel writer that um, uh, that that has this story uh, mentions that this was the first sign that Jesus did of many signs to come. So it's a beautiful story, um, almost reads like a fairy tale. Um, uh, you could say, well, perhaps it is completely made up. Uh, some critics would say that. And I'm always careful with that. You can't prove that it hadn't, hasn't happened. You can't disprove. <laughs> and, and so what I assume, just looking at the total story in the Gospels and also the, the, the data that we have from, from uh, historians kind of outside of, the, of the, the Gospel writers, we know that a lot of the, 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 the things, the events that are mentioned in the Gospels actually took place. We have uh, external verification for that. We also know the places. We can verify the places. We found uh, archaeologists have found remains of, 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 of towns, etc., and places that are described by the gospel. So th- it, it kind of makes it uh, reasonable that uh, the events that are written down in these stories actually happened and have an historical foundation. But it doesn't mean that these stories uh, are like eyewitness reports. This is not... Uh, John, uh, who wrote the gospel, was not a journalist who sat there with a, his notebook and was like, okay, and now this happens and this happens, here's a photo. <laughs> but these are stories that are told in a certain way to convey a deeper meaning than just the facts. Or they, 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 they try to convey a, sto- a deeper story than just a story that is and then, then this happened, and then that happened. And that is something you see throughout the Bible. We have a very limited uh, idea sometimes of what is true. We, when we talk about truth, we immediately think about factual truth. Did it happen or didn't it happen? But truth can also be, uh, even a, a fairy tale can convey truth. Um, if you see a movie and that movie makes you cry because it's so beautiful and it, 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 it portrays, a, I don't know, a, a love story so authentically, etc. You wouldn't diss it by saying, well, but it's completely made up, so it's not true. This is rubbish. This is completely fictional. And as if that is a bad thing. But something, that's sometimes how people talk about the Bible. It's, like, it's a fairy tale book, so it's not true, so we, we discard it. Or... The opposite of that is like everything in the Bible has to be factually true. So you get this literal approach of the Bible, which is also from a literary and a, and a theological perspective, nonsense. That's completely nonsensical. But these stories are written in a way to tell these deeper truths. But it's, I think, mostly and especially for the Gospels, um, I think it's very reasonable to assume that it's based on historical happenings. They may not have happened exactly the way they were written down. So the, this Sunday I was thinking about, I was kind of re-scrutinizing the text. That's always what I love to do is like, let, let's, let's pretend I've never seen this text before. What do I read and what does that tell me? And the first thing I noticed was that the, this passage starts with, um, in, in, in church we we to kind of like a, a, a general introduction. In those days, Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But if you go to the original gospel, it actually says the third day there was this wedding in Cana. 
And that immediate, I'm <laughs> trained in this kind of stuff. I was like, okay, why would he, why would he tell us? Why would John write that down? That it was the third day. Seems like a random uh, detail, Un until you think about well, what's the other big third day that is mentioned so explicitly in the Bible, in the Gospel? It's the day of the resurrection, the third day after Jesus died on the cross. So if John writes specifically th that it, this happened on the third day, it's because he wants us to realize that this is not just a story that happened like that. This is a story that has to do with the other story on the third day, the story of the resurrection. And so that was the first trigger that made me realize, wait a minute, there is a deeper layer here. There, there's more to this story. And then you read it again, and then it's said, um, this is a wedding. Why does John chooses this particular event as the first story he tells about a sign that Jesus does? And then I'm thinking, well, wedding totally makes sense. The Bible is full of wedding symbolism. The first story of the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve, is actually a wedding story. When, when, when Adam wakes up and sees Eve created by God and given to him as his, as his spouse, the rest of the story is a wedding. And it's, it's almost like the, the, everything in, in creation is beautiful. And it's like God prepared this wedding party for the crown on his creation, Adam and Eve. And then, of course, like every wedding, it's just the beginning. It's not that, okay, you, you tie the knot and you say yes to each other and then you're you don't have to work for it. No, <laughs> the wedding is the first day of your marriage. And what you do on the wedding day is something you have to do every single day. It's not the first day that you say yes to each other and then you can forget about it. No, actually, the, the hard part of, 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 of marriage is all the days that follow. And then when the party is over, to still say yes on a daily basis to each other. And, and you, say, you say yes to someone that may actually have hurt you or that is not as perfect as you hoped he or she would be. And so that is the, the, the wedding day is the first day of the rest of your life. And what you do there is the program for what you should do the rest of your life together. And that is true also for creation in a certain way. That's God's big yes to us. So it's not just Adam and Eve that are couple together, but it's also God who weds us. We are his bride in a certain way. And you see this bridal uh, uh, um, uh, symbolism returning time and again in biblical stories to explain, as a very simple metaphor, uh, to explain how God looks at us. We're not just slaves or, or, or beings that are there to entertain God, like some 3D live TV or something like that, like a reality show. No, we are we're we're actually so loved by God that He wants to marry us. That He loves us so much uh, that that it's it's like a, a a bride and a groom on on the day of their wedding. That's how much love God has for us. And so He says He says yes to us. But then, just like in a in marriage, we are sometimes unfaithful or we we don't respond to that love with a 100% yes and so we have to ask for forgiveness we have to sometimes there will be fights and then we have to reconcile etc so a lot of the of the things that happen in 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 marriages and in in human relations can also be applied to the way in which we relate to god 
And then the final story of the Bible is, in a way, also a wedding story. <laughs> it's so cool to realize, and it just hit me this, this Sunday, um, that the apocalypse, the, so John's revelation, is also described as a wedding feast, the, this, the wedding feast of the Lamb of God in heaven, so that the end of, of our history is also going to be a wedding. And then it will be a feast forever because there will be no more unfaithfulness. We will be one with God. And so if you look at that and then you go back to this story of the wedding of Cana, then you're like, oh, wait a minute. This is probably chosen as the first story because John wants to make clear that Jesus, just like God, his father, is looking at us be, uh with the same love as a bride, a groom has for the bride and vice versa. And so this is also a story about how Jesus relates to people. And then you have this crisis in, on the feast. There is no more wine. Well, that event is actually something, I think, that refers to our poverty constantly in our relationship with God. We are always empty-handed. Or, or we've, we, we didn't think and we are out of wine and if wine for instance symbolizes love then that is very relatable we're in in the history uh between god and and, and mankind in the bible you constantly see the the, the us <laughs> god is always has got love uh in abundance but we are often empty-handed before god and then we have to ask him to pour more love in our hearts and so all of a sudden, this story gets so much more depth. And then you have what happens then is that, first of all, Jesus refuses. He says, woman, is this your, uh, does, it, does this matter to you? Um, it is because if this story refers to the resurrection, then of course, this is not a human affair. This is between Jesus and his father, uh, just like the resurrection will be. And he says, my time has not come yet. My hour has not arrived yet. Well, duh, because if this story actually is, is about the resurrection and about the death and the resurrection, then that hour is still ahead of Jesus. It's too early. And despite that, he still performs a miracle. So Jesus bends the rules in a certain way. He, even though it's not God's plan, the hour has not come yet. Nevertheless, Jesus can be convinced to change the plan <laughs> and he helps them and then he takes he orders the servants and who are the servants in this story if this entire story is more than just the story then you can think okay well who who is symbolized by these servants could those servants be jesus apostles his followers one of the things that jesus asks them is to follow him, to listen to what he says, to do what he says, what he tells them to do. Like later on with the multiplication of the, of the bread, he tells them, go and distribute it. And, and, and they have to obey. And here too, the servants have to do what Jesus says. Mary says that, just do what he says. And then um, they take these uh, vessels for ritual washing. That too is so full of meaning because... It's not just like, okay, do we have any containers? Uh, just pick those ones. No. This is also the passing of the old laws, uh, of the Mosaic law, all the prescriptions and the rituals, etc., to the law of love um, that is abundant. And the rules are not a thing 
in itself. It's not a goal in itself. The, these rules were there to soften the hearts of the people, to, to preserve what it was ultimately a, about. It was love. And then Jesus literally takes us from the, the rules and regulations of the Mosaic law to the new covenant where love is the ultimate rule. And if you follow that rule, you can do whatever you want and there will always be more love. So again, it's so hidden in the text, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then this, this the table master, I think, uh, reflects I, uh, all the new followers of Jesus they witness the miracles, but they don't know where it comes from. And so you need the servants, the apostles, the, the followers of Jesus, to tell these new people, well, wait a minute, you see this miracle, but the, it, actually this, this is power that comes from God. And Jesus is the Son of God. And, and so they have to bring the people to the source of this miracle. Um, so you see this wonder and then his surprise that the, the best wine is kept for the last. Well, that too, if this story is connected to the story of the resurrection, then this remark is not just a random remark. Well, why did you save the best wine for the last? It could refer to the resurrection as being the ultimate gift that God saved until the last moment <laughs> as his biggest gift and like a surprise gift that literally surprises everyone. We thought that it was over. You know, Jesus died. They're out of wine. And then on the third day, Jesus is, is risen from the dead by the power of God, and he saves the best for last. It's the biggest miracle that happens in, in the life of Jesus. So I was like, wow, I can't believe so much is in this text. And then um, the, uh, the entire story, to, to choose that as the first story, the first miracle story, and a miracle is not just a magic trick. It, a miracle is always a sign in the Bible. It's never about the miracle itself. It's what the miracle points to. And in this case, this first miracle points to the entire rest of the gospel. And what Jesus does there for these newlyweds, um, basically giving them love, is what he will do every time later on when he meets people that are also empty-handed because they're ill, because they're sinners, because they collaborate with the uh, Romans. But every time he accepts, if they have an open heart, he will fill that heart with miracles, with his love, with his closeness. And uh, that is what he continues to do later on and what God continues to do even all the way up to, to uh, Pentecost when these disciples are filled almost as empty vessels with the abundance of the Holy Spirit, that is this new wine. That, and, 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 and people are actually saying this, and this is not by accident, when they hear these apostles speak in tongues filled with the Holy Spirit, oh, they must be inebriated. They're drunk. So there's so many connections between this story and, and then what happens at the resurrection and, and at Pentecost that this has to be put there on purpose. And it took me 50 years to discover that. And that's what I preached about. That's what I talked about in my homily. So it was a very didactic homily. Very felt like a little course. But to me, that's that's why I love doing this this work, because it's like I'm all of a sudden this it clicks and you're like, oh, wow! I had no idea. 
And that is also what sometimes happens with Star Wars and other stories where sometimes you see the connections like, why didn't I see that before? It's so obvious, these connections. And even in The Last Jedi, um, there are there are a lot of, of connection, connective, there's a lot of connective tissue that they introduced in that story that harkens back to the stories that we know. But it's not something you, you notice at first sight, at first viewing. You have to sometimes let it let it sit and rewatch it after a while and then just also start looking for these connections and that will help you appreciate the, the, the story. It may not be your favorite story, but there's still a lot to enjoy in terms of these, these inner references. Well, that was a very long <laughs> story that I'm sharing with you. Let's quickly uh, read a book. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? This entire show is pretty Star Wars themed because I just wanted to mention that I bought uh, the sequel to the first Thrawn book by Timothy Zahn, uh, or Zan. Uh, Timothy Zahn was one of the most popular writers of the expanded universe uh, years ago. Um, most of those books are no longer canon, but he wrote Heir to the Empire. It's like a, a trilogy uh, that, that basically started right after the end of Return of the Jedi. And it, it was glorious writing. As, as these books, even now, even though they're no longer considered to be canon uh, because they redid everything, <laughs> uh, they're still ex extremely well written. And they introduced a, a very cool villain, um, blue-skinned, uh, what's his name again? Well, uh, um, <laughs> Thrawn, Admiral Thrawn, who was just as such a new type of villain, um, a, a villain that you could actually admire because he was strategically so cunning. And so what they did when they rebooted the, the Expanded Universe, they asked Zahn to write another novel about uh, Admiral Thrawn, basically making Thrawn canon again. And that's what they've been doing uh, over and over again. They are cherry-picking uh, some elements of the existing uh, um, Expanded Universe that are now considered to be legends, and they reintroduce them in the current official canon. Um, and so Zahn has written uh, two novels about uh, Thrawn, and I saw that one was on sale in the Kindle store. So I bought it, and now I have to find time to read it. <laughs> we are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. You know that I love board games, right? And uh, on a very regular basis, I go uh, uh, to uh, a couple of friends of mine, and we play board games. And we're currently, we are we are playing Charterstone, which is kind of hardcore uh, resource management game. Um, uh, and it is pretty original in the sense that it is um, uh, you, you the kind of, the game explains itself while you're playing it. So you have you have this this huge stack of cards, and the cards contain rules. And depending on how you play the game, you will have to use this or that rule, and that rule becomes the law. But it, it, it can very well be that the game that we play with our group is totally different from a, a, another group that plays that game. And they will have other rules um, 
instead of these, and, and you have to literally, they're stickers. So you put them in a booklet and then that creates your own unique version of that game. It's very, very nifty. The downside of that, and why, why do I talk about this in the technology section, is that, of course, all depends on you making sure that you pick the right card and you read the instructions carefully and you put the sticker in the right place because if you make a little mistake, then you get in trouble. And that is the difference with board games on the computer. I love playing board games on the computer. I'm a huge fan of Carcassonne, which is a very simple game, but it's a really great game to play on the computer uh, because you could you, the computer takes care of the rules. And if I try to make an illegal move, it will warn me. The same is true for risk on the computer. There are more uh, uh, advanced games like Scythe. Um, and recently I purchased um, a tabletop simulator, uh, which goes on sale every once in a while. And that enables you basically to play any board game, in, even in VR. It works with VR goggles as well. In my case, I'm just playing it on a computer screen. Um, the advantage of playing uh, games digitally is that they will, uh, the, the game, especially if you can play against uh, an artificial intelligence opponent, uh, will will make sure that you follow the rules and that the, wor the the game functions. With this game, Charterstone, none of us knew the game. None of us had read anything beforehand because the game is supposed to be self-explanatory and it's part of the fun to discover what new rules you will have in the next round. We've been playing this for several weeks and somehow we kind of figured that we were doing something wrong because our sessions took forever. Like the last session, not this last uh, week, but a week before that, it took us like three hours to finish. And that's, whereas most of the reviews on the web and other people that played this game said, well, that's a fun game. Yeah, quick sessions, like one hour max. And we were like, what? One hour max? We did took us three hours and we're not stupid. Well, I am, but most of my fellow players are pretty well versed in the world of board games. And so we started digging around a little bit. And it turns out that we missed one of the first rule book cards. We just, for whatever reason, we missed it. And it, it contained vital rules for the entire mechanics of the game. And so we've been playing this game all wrong for weeks now. <laughs> Unbelievable. So we're, we were at the point of like, okay, do we reboot? But we can't because then we have to buy a new set of cards and that's pretty expensive. And we've been playing the game this way for many, many weeks now. We might as well just finish it with our rules. And it reminded me of the olden days as a child when I, we would bend the rules also in Monopoly and, and uh, Risk. And uh, we had this uh, casino game where we had the... the the roulette table, and we would just come up with these, you know, made-up rules that, well, if it's if it's red and you actually put all your money on black, you can still get 10% back. And <laughs> it's kind of like, let's, let's make this even more fun than, than the game originally intended. So um, I, don't, I don't mind, but it, it, it just made me appreciate more the digital versions that actually help you play the game a little bit better. So anyway. But it's, of course, playing a game on the computer is, is just 1% of the fun that you have of playing board games with a group because it's the social element that makes it so much fun. And just the other day we were, after we, we finished the round two, uh, one of the 
members of our group said, uh, it's so unbelievable. I'm sitting here with a priest and a uh, programmer and uh, a Catholic couple, and I'm not Catholic at all. I'm not religious at all, and I would never in real life ever talk to you guys. And now we're sitting here hours and hours and hours, and we, we play this game together, and it, we would have never met in, if it weren't for this board game. And that that's part of the magic of board games. It brings people together, gives us a common language and a common experience, and you become friends over time with people that you never would befriend if it hadn't been for, you know, this this common passion for board games. That's the, that's the one of the reasons that I love Star Wars, because... You meet all these Star Wars fans and then the, the, the costume makers and, and you have so much in common, but it's all Star Wars related. But that's how you get to know people that you would never, that are not part of your world. And that's what I love. And that's what we should do more. Uh, it's one of the downsides of, of uh, social media is that they create these bubbles where you the, the Facebook makes you feel as if everyone agrees with you. Everyone likes you. And of course, that's not the case, but that's the world in which you feel at ease. And but what it creates, it creates these 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 totally separate planets, and you think that the entire world agrees with you. But sometimes it's very healthy to be in contact with people that have a totally different view on life, and that challenge you a little bit. It makes you, it helps you think about you, what you stand for and what you believe and why. So there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And on the contrary, I would I would invite you, to, if you haven't already, to open up your, your circles to make sure you're not just following the people that are exactly like you. What fun is that? Try to follow people that live a totally different life and and can can give you information that you haven't seen. Also, try to step out of your national bubble. Just look beyond what is happening in your national news. Um, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of American news, and it is unbelievable how much America-centered that is. You never hear about uh, about Europe. It's always about what happens in the U.S. In France, same thing. France is a big country. If you are in France and you watch the, the evening news, it's as if we are on planet France. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And, and I like, how much are we limiting ourselves? And I know it's it's a... It's basically because it sells better if you stay close to home. But I'm always about, I'm, I'm, as a Catholic, I'm used to being part of a world church, a global church. And I love these stories from all over the world. There's still, we have something in common, in common languages, which is faith and, and the Catholic uh, language. But at the same time, that enables me to be in contact with so many different cultures and so many different people. And it enriches my life and my faith. And I think we, we should... Be vigilant to, to make sure that we don't disappear in our own boring little tiny bubble. Um, I've got some other some more stuff to talk about uh, in the tech section, but we will leave that for next week. And part of the discussion, I will also move over to my Patreon show, The After Show, which will be recorded uh, in a minute for my dear patrons. And if you want to listen to that show, which is unavailable anywhere else, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash fatherodrick. With a small monthly donation, you help me do this work that I love and that reaches so many people. And you get something in return as well. See you next week.